Is that working? There we go. Let's do that. Oh, so this way I won't scream into the microphone. Um, so yeah, our study in confidence in the Christ, and and today I want to open up with a a picture from Hannah Hernard's Hind's Feet on High Places. And uh, for those who haven't read this, this is this is an extended allegory. It is a beautiful book if you can get your hands on it. It is not theologically perfect, but it's an allegory for what it uh, what it is to live the Christian life. If you like it, it follows a, a young woman named Much Afraid, and her, as in many allegories, her name uh, the names indicate the person's kind of chief characteristic. And Much Afraid uh, decides to follow the shepherd which is, of course, the figure of Christ, and decides to walk with the shepherd, and, and um, he promises to take her to the high places. He promises to heal her, to make her no longer afraid, and to uh, perfect her, ultimately, in, as, as the Lord promises to conform us to the image of Christ. And so, <clears throat> at one point, much afraid is having a difficult time, and the shepherd, again indicative of Christ, addresses her as follows. It says, Poor much afraid, who knew that she had been slipping and stumbling in the most dreadful way, indeed worse than any other time, flushed painfully over her face. She said nothing, only looked at him almost reproachfully. Much afraid, he said, this is the shepherd speaking. He said very gently in answer to that look, Don't you know by now that I never think of you as you are now, but as you will be when I brought you the kingdom of love and washed you from all the stains and defilements in the journey. If I come along behind you and notice that you are finding the way especially difficult and are suffering from slips and falls, it only makes me think of what you will be like when you're with me, leaping and skipping on the high places. It can be easy as we encounter ourselves and, and go through the day-to-day uh, -day experience of living to lose track of the promises that the shepherd, that the Lord has made to all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, His Son. It can be easy to lose sight of those promises. It can be easy to lose sight of the, of the way that God sees us. But what we know for a fact is that God sees us in all truth as being positioned in Jesus Christ and that changes everything. So that wonderful lesson that uh, Hannah Hernard, uh, the author of Heinz Feet on High Places, taught now is going to be essentially the thrust of everything that we'll discuss in uh, today's study, this evening's study. So, again, to remind us of, of where we've been, we will not find confidence for any reason, uh, or we will not for any reason find lasting confidence in ourselves. We can try, we can try to fool ourselves, we can try to uh, uh, attempt to uh, assure ourselves we can lie to ourselves as always we can deal with that but we will not for, uh, find any confidence in ourselves we find that we're limited we're sinful we're ignorant and ultimately we are doomed and so trying to find uh, confidence in ourselves trying to make ourselves the source of our confidence is a hopeless endeavor what we saw in our next study is that confidence is God, in God is the only thing that makes logical sense he alone is able and yet we had a problem and that is that while we could have absolute confidence in God and His eternality and His consistency and His love and His uh, righteousness and His justice, we find that we were the problem. We were sinful. We were separated from Him. And so what we saw last week is how we can be confident and confident living has to start, must start in the cross 
of Jesus Christ. The cross secures our past. We are justified by his working at the cross and by faith and not working alone. It is his work that, that, uh, that forgives us, that declares us righteous. The cross secures our present. We remain secure and we remain within the hand and the plan of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the cross secures our future so that when you and I stand before the creator God of all the universe and are asked to give an account, we'll say that we can only approach him by Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. So the cross is the essential stepping point, the starting point for true, biblical, godly, confident living. And so today we get to move on and understand what it means to find our daily confidence in Christ. And by finding confidence in our identification, right? Most of us will carry some kind of identification, whether that's a student ID card or a driver's license, or if we work in a place, uh, we might have a, an ID that gets us in the building. There's all sorts of different identifications we hold that say that's who this person is, uh, they belong here. But today we're going to learn about our most important identification, and that is our identification with Christ. In order to understand that, we have to understand what we were identified with previously. Our previous identification was not with Christ, but was with Adam. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, we were all identified with him, and we all shared that destiny. And so as we see in our identification in Adam... That when God looked at us, he saw a, a son or a daughter of Adam and Eve, and that identification has a destiny. And that destiny is to die. Whereas in Adam, all die. As we see, every soul is immortal. Every soul will last forever. It is about the character of that eternity, whether we'll be with God and knowing God, having life, or apart from him, what the Bible refers to as death. So, in our identification in Adam, we had a, a destiny, and that destiny was death, an eternity apart from God. Jesus said in uh, John 8, 24, Therefore I say to you uh, that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So twice, the Lord speaks with his Hebrew poetry pattern, saying that apart from faith in Christ, you are identified not just with Adam, your federal head or corporate head, but you're identified with all your sins. When God looks at us before we're believers and looks at an unbeliever, he sees that person's destiny in Adam. He sees that person's identification with Adam. And he sees them as being identified with every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action. He has to see them identified with those things. Colossians 2, 13a gives us this uh, same idea. It says, and you being dead. Where? in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, the un he's talking about uh, his, his audience before they were believers, saying you were identified with when God, the true uh, decree or author and, and standard of what is true, what is real, what is right, what exists, looked at you and looked at me apart from Christ. He sees us identified with our sins. Sees us as being dead or separated from his life-giving uh, spirit and provision. And identified with all of the wrong things, all the bad things that we've done, seen, thought, uh, and uh, said. That prove it. And that was our position. That was our place of absolute hopelessness. 
And that's why we had every reason to be underconfident as we went through life. Because the only thing that we could be truly confident of, if we were honest, is that we were worthy of death and hell. But what we see is that the Lord didn't leave us in that identification, as we saw last week. And Watchman Nee is a, a, a wonderful Chinese theologian. He actually gave a bunch of quite a few sermons that were uh, eventually written down and translated into English, one of them being The Normal Christian Life, and uh, one book, rather, being The Normal Christian Life, a commentary on Romans, another one being uh, Sit, Walk, Stand, a commentary on Ephesians. But in both, he tries to explain what identification is all about. And the way that he does that is he says, if I take this piece of paper and put it in this book, that piece of paper is thus identified with the book. You can't see the piece of paper, you only see the book. If I were to take the book and mail it off to China or off to uh, England, then the piece of paper would go off to England, right? If I were to throw the book in water, the piece of paper would ultimately get wet. If I were to burn the book, the piece of paper would also consequently be burned. And so, he, uh, Watchman Nee explains what it is for us to first be in Adam and have the destiny of Adam, and then be taken out of the Adam book, if you like, and placed perfectly into Christ. Your destiny no longer relates to what you did. It no longer relates to who you were. It now relates to your new federal head, your new source of identification in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Scripture wants, no, needs us to understand. Is that the destiny of that piece of paper is now forever tied to the destiny of this book. Or... To put it another way, or to explain the analogy, your destiny as a believer is intimately and permanently tied to the destiny of Jesus Christ the righteous. So we pray, Lord, make me a Christian, make me a Christian. And he says, no, I've already identified you with my son, Jesus Christ, the moment you put faith in him. And now his, when I look at you, I see Christ. Now his destiny is your destiny. When we look and think about the cross, and, 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 and we're going to explore what that identification looks like, because you're not just, uh, it's, it's such an important concept, and it's very much the reality that you absolutely cannot begin to live the Christian life apart from this uh, information. So first of all, we look at John 3.16, For God so loved, the, will you read this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we have God's motivation. God loved the world, right? That he gave. So he was the one who loved the world, and he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That whoever does what? Whoever believes in him. That's right. Whoever puts faith in Jesus Christ, in his person, in his work, and his uh, complete salvation that he offers us should not perish. In fact, should not ever perish, but instead 
have eternal and everlasting life. That exchange happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is talking about what happens when a person trusts in Jesus for salvation and the change that follows. First uh, John 2, 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation. Well, that's a big word. Hold on. Propitiation means satisfaction. He is the satisfaction of God's righteousness. He himself satisfied God the Father's righteousness for our sins. And not only ours, or not for ours only, but for also for the whole world. Are you committed to these facts? You're here, you're a Christian, you believe the gospel, but do you understand the gravity of what it means? That Jesus Christ fully propitiated the righteousness of God the Father. That there is no payment needed for sins past, present, or future, but what he has done when he declared it is finished, that it was finished indeed. That was what you believed at the beginning of your salvation, of your walk with Christ, and that's what you're meant to believe going forward. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the ground of growth. That's just the beginning of your life uh, with Christ. And as we go forward, we get to uh, revisit what we read in our, um, our passage today. We're going to break it down verse by verse, though. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So the first question is a logical one, coming off Romans 1 through 5. Paul had just explained how amazing this salvation is, how Christ has made the full payment for sin, how if you trusted in him, you have and will continue to be justified and have peace with God going forward, how you're guaranteed to be brought forth all the way to the end and be saved from wrath. And then the natural question is, oh, so then we can go do what we want and sin as badly as we want. And Paul says, certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it. So he uses this word died to. Before, remember, you were dead to God and, um, and you were alive to sin. But now, you have died to sin. We're going to look at that in greater detail later. Says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is not talking about water baptism. We can go over the, the long story. But, the, but, but essentially, when the uh, early translators of the English Bible came to the word baptizo in Greek, right? They had a problem because baptizo means to immerse. And they were sprinkling. Most of the church that was translating were sprinkling at the time. So how do they do this when you've got John the baptizer going and immersing people and then people being immersed uh, at Acts chapter 2 and then say that baptism is, um, is something different than their process because they kind of trademarked sprinklings very effective. You can get a lot done. However, what we find is that mistranslated, in fact, they didn't translate it at all. They transliterated it. And the problem that is, is that all of a sudden made baptism sound like some sort of magical spiritual action. But what we see here is if we just translate this as immerse, as the word itself means, it falls completely into its, under, into its clear understanding. It says, do you not know that as many of us were immersed into Jesus Christ, were immersed into his death? So the only reason you think of this as water baptism is because we've been trained to, every time we see baptism, to think of that ritual. And while that ritual has place and value, um, we'll argue symbolic entirely, it's not here. You were immersed into Christ when you put your faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit did that. He immersed you into Jesus Christ the righteous. And when you were immersed into Jesus Christ, you were immersed into him in a very specific time. And the time that we're talking about in Romans is his death. 
So, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, if you've placed your faith in him, God accounts you as having been there. Remember when we were talking about God's character? We said he was eternal. We said he's outside of time. Now think this over for just a minute. If God is outside of time, it's no problem for him to see you believing in Christ, trusting his son in 2010 or 1984 or 1986 or whatever it is you happen to trust him and say, well, Brad believed here, but I'm going to reckon him. I'm going to account him as being crucified with my son, Jesus Christ. You're immersed into Jesus Christ. Like the paper in the book, you are spiritually present with Jesus Christ, or you were spiritually present with Jesus Christ at the cross. When he died, he was the substitution for your sin, but when he died also, you died with him to sin, and, and, and we'll see to much else, or much more. Certainly not, do you not know that as many of us were immersed into Christ Jesus, by the Spirit, we're immersed into his death, adding by the Spirit there for you, for clarification. Therefore, we were buried with him. So you find that you aren't just immersed or identified with him in his, um, in his death, you're also immersed or identified with him in his burial. As we're going to look at, at these things over the next three weeks, we'll, we'll be able to play out their importance all the more. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So as Christ was raised from the dead, so spiritually speaking was every believer in Jesus Christ raised from the dead with him. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You want to know how I know that he's not talking about water baptism beyond all the other clear context clues here? He's just restating his argument, and instead of saying, reiterating on water baptism, what's he reiterating on? You were united with. You were united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also, be, also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Okay, this is not the last time I'm going to tell this joke, but you know, when Jesus was crucified... There were two thieves on either side. We don't know their identity. Well, we don't know one of them. But do you know the other one was Paul's father? Because right here, Paul says that his old man was crucified with Christ. Every time I tell that joke, it hurts me. But I can't not tell it. I can't help it. Okay, so, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. So now we have this new picture of this old man. That's all of who you were before you placed faith in Christ was now crucified with Christ, was done away with, was fancied or reckoned to be entirely dead. Everything you are apart from Christ was reckoned to be judged and destroyed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, the assumption is, we were just told that we would have, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed into sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the ABCs of growing in Christ. Okay? This is it. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, the Lord supernaturally put you into him, 
inserted you and identified you with him so that you can say with as much reality as Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you trusted in Jesus Christ, then that is just as true of you as it was of Paul. That is a spiritual fact that is given to us on the basis of Christ's work by God's perfect and amazing grace. It's nothing you can earn. It's nothing you can fall out of. It's nothing you could lose. It's nothing you can break. It's not a gift you could ever even think about giving back, even if you wanted to. That is now your permanent identification. That is now your standing in heaven, both now and forevermore. And our life in Christ, in these two passages, these two critical passages to which we will return, our day-to-day -day life, it's always a consistent message. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves. Reckon. That is a, it's an old-timey word, right? All the cowboys are excellent at spiritual growth because they reckon that this is the case. Reckon means to count something as true. The Greek word is legitimai. The idea is that you put it down in a, as a fact. It's actually an accounting term. So put it down in the books as true. Count on something. What are we supposed to reckon ourselves? We're supposed to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you say, oh, well, that's fantastic. I'll do that. But I still struggle with sin. And you're right. We will still struggle with sin because death does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean that when we were identified with Christ at the cross, our sin nature was destroyed. It means that we were separated from the power of our sin nature. And I hope you can see the difference. Our sin nature is described here as a slave master. And he's saying you're separated from that slave master. You've been set apart from that forever. You never need to obey that master again. You are no longer his slaves. And of course, Romans goes on to uh, 6 goes on to deal with that and say, if you're not, his, uh, if you're not slaves to him, um, if you're not slaves to sin anymore, why obey it? Because sin never did anything good for us. Sin never gave us anything that was truly uplifting, of which we could be proud. Even the pleasures of sin are so momentary and fleeting and so quickly give way to shame and to embarrassment and to loss and heartache and hurt. So Paul's asking the normal question, you've been, you've been separated from sin, why would you go back? We're uh, like those who have Stockholm Syndrome. You're familiar with Stockholm Syndrome? So when someone has uh, uh, been abducted or kidnapped by someone and then over the course of their abduction they develop feelings for or a sympathy for their kidnapper and thus sometimes even like fall in love with them. That's exactly what happens with our sin nature. It happens with our sin nature. Our sin nature was nothing but an abusive husband to us in every way. And having been freed from that abusive husband, we still seem to have held on to feelings. The same message in Galatians 2.20 and 21, but 20 for sure. Um, how do I live? I live this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. So, both of these things are the same statement, if you like. In Romans 6, 11, it's reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Why? Because when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you truly were separated. 
He's not asking you to believe something that's not true. He's asking you to trust in something that is spiritually true. He's asking you to reject the lie that sin still has a place and authority and dominion in your life and accept the freedom that's been given to you in Christ. And so similarly, similarly in Galatians 2 and verse 20, he says that I live my life by faith in the Son of God. We don't live by a set of rules or laws. We don't live by a set of uh, patterns or habits. We live by day by day, moment by moment, faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the first thing that we see is that you are dead in Christ. When you died and you were identified with him on the cross, you are dead to, you are separated from your sin nature. You never, ever again need to entertain the lies of your sin nature that would try to break you down, that would try to get you to feel uh, insecure or, or uh, hopeless, useless, worthless, lost. You never again need to obey the demands of your sin nature that would, that would tell you to do things that are hurtful, hopeless, that would fill your heart with bitterness and anger and hatred for every moment of your life. You never need to be slave to that sin nature again. Why does that give you confidence? Because we always lose against our sin nature, right? How many of us have made, don't raise your hands, a New Year's resolution? Now, of those resolutions, how many made it through January? How many made it through August? How many made it through the year? And you say, one, I got one. I did it all year long. My resolution was to continue breathing. Or I resolved to gain weight. I did it. <laughs> I do my resolution every year, right? However, we know that as we come up against our sin nature in the in the hand-to-hand -hand combat, if we try to stop ourselves from sinning, we only wind up more entrapped to sin. Even if we conquer whatever that sin is that we're trying to uh, to ward off, we wind up falling into some other greater sin. The Pharisees are the perfect example of this. They were able to keep themselves from all manner of sin by their various legalisms, and they fell into the greatest sin of self-righteousness. And that kept them further from God, further from Jesus Christ, than any of the sins of the prostitutes, tax collectors, or alcoholics of their day. But you are dead to your sin nature. You, can, you never need to lose to your sin nature again. That sin nature is a, is a counterproductive uh, force trying to destroy you and you're free from it forever. So you can live with confidence that as long as your eyes are on Christ, you will be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. You will have what you need for each day and the sin nature never needs to get the best of you again. But we move forward. Ephesians, that's not all you've been separated from. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 says, For he himself is our peace who hath made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, this is an important passage. He's talking, uh, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus, as far as we know, had one major problem. And that one major problem in the church at Ephesus was that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers weren't getting along. 
They weren't willing to be together. They weren't willing to hang out together because the Jewish believers had this huge background in cultural history uh, with the law and with obedience to the law and kosher eating. And the Gentiles had no such attachment, so they just weren't getting along. And so here's uh, Paul writing to try to unite those two uh, factions of believers, if you like, in Ephesus. He says, he himself is our peace who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. What's he talking about? The law of Moses. The law of Moses was the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. And he's telling them that the, the requirements, the fleshy requirements of the law were removed. The law and the commandments contained in its ordinance so to create in him one new man from the two, thus making peace. So the primary uh, application of this is that believers are not separated by anything. But the secondary application that is equally as important to us is the fact that the law has been, or the principle of law, no longer governs the Christian's life. This is uh, repeated, and this idea is repeated in Colossians 2.14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to the law, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So you see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, the righteous requirements of the law were met and were now not governed by any sort of legal system. Romans 7.6 continues this idea. He says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the old list of the letter. And finally, Galatians 2.19 says, For through the law died, I died to the law that I might live to God. So, we saw that when you were crucified with Christ, you were dead to, separated from the penalty of your sin. You were separated from, you died to your sin nature. Though it can still influence you, it can never have mastery over you again unless you uh, submit to it, unless you let it. Now we find that you are dead to the principle of law. You're no longer meant to be living your life by some adherence to an outs outside list of do's and don'ts, but rather are led by the Spirit of God as he works through the Word of God to change and transform you. You are dead to the principle of law, a method of uh, punishments and rewards in order to be uh, spiritually grown. Why does that make us more confident? Because it shows that we're now in a direct relationship with our loving Father who oversees our every situation who guides us by His Spirit. And we're not wondering and fearful that we're going to be judged by some principle or by some law to which we are, of which we're ignorant, but rather responsive to His Holy Spirit and His perfect provision for us in Jesus Christ. But we move on. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Colossians 2 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is the living in the world you subject yourselves to its regulations? Right? So, here he's been crucified with, to the world or died to the basic principles or the, the ideas of the world. This is the world system that is directly uh, working in conspiracy against the glory of God. 
This is this, the world system that would lie to us, that would deceive us, that would attempt to keep us enslaved in fear or in lust or in sin. However it would, in ever which way it would try to deceive us, we are now dead to this world system, no longer accountable to it, no longer deceived by it or needing to be deceived by it. We are free from the basic and elementary principles of this ungodly world system. So, to put this very simply, you, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ through nothing of your own doing, were identified perfectly, fully, and completely with Jesus Christ at the cross. You are forever separated from, you are dead to your sin nature. And you will never be restored to it again. You will never be put back under its power except that you willingly choose to. You are dead to the principle of law. You are no longer going to be grown spiritually by fulfilling these five rules, these ten rules, these fifteen principles. But you are now in a living, lifelong relationship, eternal relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. You are separated from the principle of law. You are dead to this world system. We are dead to this world system, and while it may even take our lives, it can never touch who you are in Christ and what is yours in Christ. And every moment you spend in His Word, every moment you spend growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through His wonderful Word, is another moment that you are less deceived by this world system. This is the truth. It is so easy to fall into deception. And finally, you are alive to God and Christ. So as we consider this important topic of what it means to walk and live with confidence, this is the most important thing that we can understand. I couldn't overstate this. I couldn't find a, a, a way to you know, use hyperbole to, get, hyperbole to get past this. This is the way to live confidently. You can imagine, if you will, a young man who's walking through the, the aisles of a store. You know, the candy shop is there, and he's just ran, at random taking pieces of candy with not a care in the world, smiling to himself and eating each piece of candy. And, and, and someone's watching is just absolutely scandalized. That child is stealing candy. He's stealing so much candy in every single... He just take a few more steps and take another piece of candy and eat it. And then go and take another step. And, and this person, just imagine, is just losing their mind at this incredibly ill-behaved candy thief. And so finally she goes and she grabs him by the collar and drags him up to the front and says, This young man is stealing candy. And the candy shop owner says, That's my son. He can have all the candy he wants. This is why you and I, by the way, if I own a candy shop, you cannot steal my candy. I'm doing accounting on all that. Every piece has to sell. But this is why you can live with confidence no matter what goes on in this world because the God of the universe has placed you in his son and he has given you a destiny and he's given you a provision and there is nothing, no lie of this world, no lie from hell, no deception from our sin nature. There is no principle of law or manner of ex uh, 
accusation that can stand against what God has declared about you in Jesus Christ, His Son. So what's tomorrow? Another day at work. Another day of being assaulted by an ungodly uh, world that clearly would seek to rob God of His glory. What is that to us? We're separated from this world. We're separated from its destiny. We're separated and now alive to God in Christ Jesus. So might I encourage you, as all of these forces come against you, as your sin nature comes against you, and, and tries to tempt you to trust not in God and His perfect provision, but trust in your own means, whether that's our own jealousy, our own selfishness, our own anger, our own lusts after various things. Whatever it is that the, that the flesh tempts you to trust in yourself, you can say, no, I'm dead to that. I don't need those disgusting, sorry, pathetic excuses for wholeness because I have been made full and whole in Jesus Christ. And when the enemy of your soul comes up and tries to accuse you based on the past sins or your failures or the failures that might come today, say, I'm sorry, you're wrong. I have been identified with Christ and I can live by constant faith and trust in Him. And when this world system comes and tries to tear down your faith in His book and His revelation and His salvation and His provision, then you can say, no, I'm dead to your lies, to your deceptions. And I'm alive now to God in Christ. As it was in the first moments of your salvation, you trusted in Jesus Christ and His provision for you. So it will be in every step along the way. May you trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect provision for you at His cross. And know that when you go back and read the wonderful words of the Gospels and the crucifixion, the death of your Lord for you, that you were there, identified with Him, placed perfectly in Him. And that final movement of God, you share in the destiny of Jesus Christ who will wait to come and gather us up. Close our study in the prayer. Our Heavenly Father, your identification, the identification you gave us, gives us confidence. It was not something that we could earn, nor was it something that we could ever hope to deserve. It is a function of your grace. We find that your blood covered the sins. But your cross dealt with us, the sinner. At that cross, we're forgiven. At that cross, we're reborn. Made to walk in newness of life. Father, the only thing that stops us from that moment-by-moment -moment victory, every breath we take, and every step and day of our lives, Simply our ever-growing faith in what you've already done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, invite you to sing our closing hymn with us.